0: Welcome to the Institute of Advanced Studies podcast series on life in the time of coronavirus. In the second episode, we hear from Philippa Hetherington, lecturer in modern Eurasian history in the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at UCL. Philippa is a scholar of international legal history, biopolitics and feminist theory, particularly in the context of empire and under socialism. Here she reflects on the virus in relation to historical debates on sexuality and the stigmatisation of sex workers. Historians are well placed to think about previous incarnations of disease and spread so that we work out what is and what isn't unprecedented. We hope you enjoy this piece. It's no secret that the existential threat caused by COVID-19 has sparked massive and rapid government action across the world. In Europe and North America, this action has focused on rapid lockdowns, travel bans, border closures and restrictions on movement designed to flatten the viral curve by limiting face-to-face contact. Along with economic measures to try to lessen the accompanying financial blow, these measures have led to the diagnosis of the return of the state after decades of freewheeling pro-market and anti-state politics. The flip side of this action has been the suggestion that any criticism of lockdown measures or of travel bans, no matter how tentative, is tantamount to libertarianism, and that evidence of innate scepticism of state action lies behind these critiques. When these measures were first put in place, I'll admit that I was one of those people worried about the possible long-term impacts of border closures and of massive restrictions on internal mobility that accompany lockdown. While I certainly acknowledge the necessity of social distancing, I also worry about the effects of lockdown on the most vulnerable, including those who work in the informal economy, migrants, refugees, and others. But I've never considered myself a libertarian consider such skepticism necessarily an anti-state critique realizing that it might be perceived as such I began to ask myself where my position came from somewhat to my surprise I decided that it was my academic focus on the history of sexuality and in particular on state efforts to regulate and suppress migratory prostitution that was framing my response Now, a connection between the history of sexuality and our coronavirus moment might seem tenuous at best, and even a desperate grasp at contemporary relevance from a historian at worst. But I'll explain why the connection makes sense to me. I also want to caution that by teasing out this connection, I'm not making any claim for lessons from history. I don't believe in directly applicable lessons from the past, and I think that usable pasts are actually constructs produced by the present. I do, however, think that the study of history produces certain epistemological lenses or ways of thinking through which we frame the present. Lenses that we can think with and through to illuminate connections that we might not otherwise see. In the present case, I think looking at two examples from the history of sexuality, first the 19th century regulation of prostitution, and then the 1980s AIDS crisis. Can help us to examine the possibilities and limits of public health measures focused on controlling movement and social contact. The first example I want to think through relates to the regulation of prostitution in the 19th century. For much of the 19th century, in Europe and in European empires, prostitution was legal if regulated. This system, first introduced in the early 19th century France under Napoleon, was intended to stem the spread of venereal disease by instituting medical surveillance over women who sold sex. Over the course of the century, it spread across Europe. It was introduced in the Russian Empire in 1844, for example, and in parts of the British Isles in 1864 with the so-called Contagious Diseases Acts. According to these regulations, which were usually enacted at a municipal rather than a countrywide level, women who wanted to sell sex legally had to register with local police. These police enforced weekly medical checks for venereal disease. At the time, there was widespread fear of syphilis, in particular, as a disease that could cause death, madness, and social degeneration. Registered prostitutes had to submit to invasive medical checks of their genitalia for any sign of this or other venereal disease. If they were given a clean bill of health, they could return to work, but if not, they could be forcibly kept in so-called lock hospitals until they were cured. Depending on the specifics of the regulations in a given city, women either registered as individual prostitutes or in legal brothels known as tolerated houses, and the medical checks were performed by visiting police doctors. Over the course of the 19th and early 20th centuries, European empires introduced these regulations in municipal and military districts throughout the colonies. Thus, for example, while regulation began in Russia in just three cities, St. Petersburg, Odessa, and Moscow, by 1910 it had been introduced to 256 cities across the empire, from Warsaw in the west to Bahu in the Caucasus and Tashkent in Turkestan. In Britain, the Contagious Diseases Acts were abolished in the Metropole in the 1880s after widespread public outcry. But they continued in colonies like India and Hong Kong into the interwar period. And in France, regulation was only abolished in 1944. Now, the logic behind focusing anti-venereal disease public health measures on sex workers was not actually that different from our own emphasis on social distancing. Anyone, of course, could catch and pass on venereal disease. But the risk of spread was considered at the time to be lowest amongst married couples if they were only having sex with each other. It was thought to be slightly higher for those with multiple partners outside marriage, and it was believed to be highest of all among prostitutes who might be having sex with multiple men in a single night. Now, I'll emphasize that this was an assumption that was being made. It remained and remains contentious whether or not this is actually the case. For example, there are scholars and medical professionals who argue that the spread of venereal disease tends to take place within households and within partnerships more than outside them. Nonetheless, this is the basis they were working on in the 19th century. So intervening in women who sold sex's activities meant intervening at the point of the most concentrated contact in the mind of the supporters of regulation. They, of course, ignored the injustice and misogyny of concentrating all regulatory measures on these women and not their clients. The medical regulation of prostitution resulted in both widespread abuses of police power over the women and vociferous social movements against it. Opponents of regulation spoke eloquently of the harms the system did to women, while scientists disagreed on exactly how effective it was at preventing the spread of syphilis. Some critics even, arguably with reason, likened enforced medical inspections to rape as they involved the forcible penetration of women with medical instruments irrespective of their consent. The alternative these critics often proposed for combating venereal disease was the restriction of sexual activity within the heterosexual family. While political organizing among sex workers themselves in this period was extremely difficult and rare, those women who did speak out in the pages of police interviews or court records were often eloquent in their rage against the misogyny of a system that placed all carceral weight on them and never on their clients. Now, the 19th century regulation of prostitution is arguably an extreme example of carceral public health measures, more extreme than those we witness in response to the coronavirus. But the critique of these measures centred on a central question that we may also ask ourselves. Are there limits to the acceptable intervention of state power over individual bodies when it comes to stopping potentially fatal diseases? If so, where do those limits lie? How do we negotiate the fact that the effects of restrictions on social contact fall far more severely on some people than on others, and they disproportionately fall on those who are already disadvantaged? How may we limit the discretionary power that such emergency situations hand to police and other state organs who may be liable to abuse them? And what would a politics of care look like that managed to avoid the carceral effects of these kinds of measures? My second example from the history of sexuality jumps forward to the 1980s and the early days of the AIDS crisis. This was another moment at which ideas about sex, public health and the responsibilities of the state were being articulated. As soon as it emerged, AIDS was heavily associated with marginalized populations. With gay men, prostitutes, and intravenous drug users in particular. Many states responded, and some continue to respond, with heavy handed measures, banning the immigration of AIDS sufferers, and failing to counter widespread community stigmatization of groups believed to be most susceptible. The response of patients and the communities surrounding them was, however, vociferous, swift, and righteously angry. Rather than top-down measures stigmatizing and isolating AIDS sufferers, organizations like ACT UP demanded an expansion of the welfare measures of the state to help rather than hurt those most susceptible. The name ACT UP stands for AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and it was a grassroots organization founded in New York in 1987 to coordinate radical direct protest action against a U.S. government it saw as ineffective and criminally negligent in its inattention to the AIDS crisis. ACT UP protests called for a recognition of AIDS sufferers rather than their marginalization, investment in drugs, treatments, and vaccines, access to early drugs trials, and state-sponsored support and medical care. Their calls to civil disobedience were watershed moments for the demands that the state intervene not to chastise but to capacitate AIDS sufferers. At the same time, humanity's research on responses to AIDS have reminded us that even when state measures framed as the neutral provision of welfare were provided, they could often involve efforts to discipline bodies and sexualities framed as deviant in ways that have had negative effects on queer, non-white, and non-gender normative bodies. So how does historical, feminist, queer theoretical, and cultural research on these examples help us to think through the current coronavirus moment? there are obvious differences between the examples I'm giving here and COVID-19. Perhaps the most obvious being the scale of the threat. While coronavirus is presented as an equal threat to all, venereal disease is usually thought to threaten some groups more than others. However, we've already seen how in practice, the danger of coronavirus falls disproportionately on the already economically marginalized, those who are forced to continue working in unsafe environments while the wealthier shelter at home. The two examples I offer suggest situations in which a state emphasis on carceral solutions, a category that I would argue includes travel bans and the police enforcement of social distancing, has come at the expense of welfare responses. This is what we arguably have seen in the initial response to coronavirus in the UK, Italy or the US. The immediate emphasis on lockdown has crowded out talk of more testing, the provision of greater care for the most vulnerable and it's occurred in the context of long-term defunding of health and social care systems. Examples from the history of sexuality remind us that the language of public health emergency, whether it be moral panic about syphilis, an AIDS crisis, a coronavirus pandemic, can prompt efforts to end points of dense social contact in ways that also cause considerable harm and open up discretionary powers to the police and other organs of the state. I'm not suggesting here that our present lockdown shouldn't have happened or that no travel should have been banned, although it's worth noting that the WHO has consistently argued that travel bans in particular don't work and have problematic human rights implications. As a humanities scholar, I would of course not dream of intervening in a properly scientific and epidemiological debate, and I'm very happy for people much more qualified than me to be making decisions about those kinds of things. Rather, as humanities scholars, I think it's our responsibility to point out that in implementing lockdowns, states always have to make decisions about who is controlled and who is capacitated by this process in ways that have widespread biopolitical effects that can fall unevenly across genders, races, ethnicities, and sexualities. We shouldn't be surprised if those who are most hurt by these measures end up pushing back against them and resisting the most violent manifestations of them, as sex workers did in the 19th century and as ACT UP activists did in the 1980s and 90s. As fallout from the coronavirus continues, we would do well to bear these examples in mind. Thanks for listening. or thanks also to Philippa Iderington This podcast was produced by Catherine Stokes and me, Albert brenchardt Music is by Best of Feelings and from the BBC Sound Archive. Communications are by Patricia Mascarei-Jumbard. Executive producer is Tamar Gar. For more podcasts and think pieces from the IAS, just google Institute of Advanced Studies Talk Pieces and hit our website. You can send us your feedback at Studies at ucl.ac.uk. Look after yourselves and others, and see you soon.